First Peter chapter four. I'm going to read verses one through eleven. Our study continues at verse six. First Peter four one through eleven. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are ashamed when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I'm continuing now at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's get right into our study this time. I want to tie together verses 4 through 6. When we take a militant stand of resistance against sin, as we studied in the last video, it may be that some of our friends and neighbors and co-workers will be surprised, maybe upset, that we do not join with them in the sins they invite us to. Peter says two things about that. One, they will give account for their sins. Two, though we may be judged negatively while we are here in the flesh by people, God judges us perfectly according to our real spiritual content. And that's why the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. So it is helpful for me to read verses four through six together. And I like the way this is written in the NIV. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, 
so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Verse 7. There is another statement that may immediately get your attention. The end of all things is at hand. Let's pause there. I don't believe Peter was saying that the end of the world was soon to happen. That would go against what Jesus said and what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 3, Peter said that we don't know when the Lord will come. He will come like a thief in the night. So here in chapter 4 and verse 9 of 1 Peter, he isn't talking about the end of the world. Peter has been writing about how Christians are to live in hostile circumstances. And Peter has consistently said, all your duties to God continue, even though your earthly circumstances are challenging. So I understand this to be a reference to how we ought to live being ready for the end of all things, every day, every hour, every minute. I don't know when Christ will come again, so I need to live as if he could come at any moment, even though I'm going through difficulty now. This is another viewpoint, or I should say there is another viewpoint sometimes brought up, that Peter is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. I cannot rule that out entirely since I believe Peter was writing before the destruction of Jerusalem. However, living in a constant state of readiness for the second coming will be true, would be true after 70 AD and is certainly true for us. So what do we do with this? To be certain, we can just keep reading and see what we need to do. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So whatever construction we place on the previous statement, we can be certain that this is the way Christians ought to live. A lack of self-control interferes with good living and effective praying. If the intended result is to pray sincerely and be blessed, part of that has to be self-control. Prayer requires that we gather up our thoughts in the context of reverence for God. Prayer means we are thoughtful, unselfish, penitent, and grateful, and all of those things require self-control. Therefore, be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. And to that add, sober-minded. One translation says, watchful. So this is about our state of mind, same as it has been since the opening of chapter 4. Our state of mind, militant against sin, humble before God, thoughtful, knowing the Lord could return at any time. Verse 8, 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, notice that statement, above all, of utmost importance. Loving God and loving God's people can never be some secondary or optional virtue. No virtue taught in the New Testament can be relegated to some optional status. And love is preeminent. Love for God, love for Christ, love for the Word, love for the lost, and love for each other. Even when the culture around us is hostile and divided and corrupt, angry, keep loving one another. Even when we are dealing with imperfect people, and we always are, keep loving one another. Above all, keep loving one another. And then Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. I want to be clear and strong in this regard. We must not read this and think, as long as we love more than we sin, our sin is okay. No, that just cannot be Peter's point because it would pose serious conflict with everything else Peter has said and everything else the Holy Spirit has revealed. I doubt any of you have such an idea, but you need to be equipped to answer this. This chapter begins by saying what? Arm yourselves against sin. Peter would not say, resist sin, and then say later, just love and it'll all be fine. Love must always be connected to our resistance to sin. So rejecting that, let's think about how love covers a multitude of sin. I'm going to give you some examples I think you'll be familiar with. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's love prompted him to respond to our need to make a way for us to get out of sin. So as I imitate that love that God has exhibited toward me, as I love God and love others, one result will be to help people get out of sin. It doesn't mean the more I sin, the more love can cover it up. It doesn't mean that because I love, I overlook sin. No, the more engaged I am in loving God and loving others, the greater will be my good responses to get people out of sin, to forgive the penitent. Turn to the book of James in chapter 5, 19 and 20. And here's a good illustration of how love covers a multitude of sin. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How is sin covered? 
by acting out of love, turning the sinner from the error of his way. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Every step we take in 1 Peter requires that we keep this in historical context. Peter is writing to Christians who are undergoing persecution back in the first century, described in chapter 1 as being tested by fire. Now, when under pressure, one temptation the devil throws at us is to isolate ourselves, to withdraw. That's what we must not do. Under pressure and persecution, Christians must not withdraw, but unite, help each other. The previous verse says, have fervent love for one another. And part of that ought to be hospitality. Now, we, we have to talk about definition here, because in our society, the word hospitality has a very different meaning from the first century culture. Most people today, when they hear the word hospitality, think of something entirely social, coffee and donuts, having somebody over for dinner. I want every one of you to know that I'm not opposed to that. I'm free after six most evenings. In fact, you can bring coffee and donuts to my house any day. I love that kind of hospitality but we must not impose social hospitality into the New Testament words. You know what hospitality was about for persecuted Christians? It was about having a place to stay that is safe with food and water. Hospitality in the first century was about needs, not just social obligation or fun. Being with each other, to help each other, to support each other and whatever other ways help might be needed. So I think, given the context of 1 Peter, this is about Christians meeting the needs of Christians and doing that without grumbling. In the contemporary English version, welcome people into your home and don't grumble about it. This is not about taking in just anybody. Be hospitable to one another and don't grumble about it. We are not in the kind of persecution climate those Christians were in, but these are attitudes we need to cultivate now. We need to help each other in the ways that help is needed. These are constants of character for Christians all the time. I'll be right back for verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 from the New International Version. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve one another, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. 
As I explained a few minutes ago, when there is external pressure, there is the potential for withdrawal or isolation or dismissing the necessity of using what you have. To keep that from happening, Christians under attack must keep doing what's taught in verses 8 and 9, fervent love, hospitality, faithfully practiced among us will keep us from that unwarranted isolation. The instructions in verses 10 and 11 function the same way and serve the same purpose. If I will use whatever I have to use as a good steward of the manifold grace of God, if you will use whatever you have to offer under the same divine influence, the external pressure against us will not destroy us. Speaking, serving, just two examples given in verse 11. Whatever legitimate gift or talent or resource or opportunity you can bring to the task of serving God and serving others, if you will devote yourself to that without complaint, even under pressure, be thankful for that time and opportunity and give glory to God about all of that. Give glory to God. Whatever serving you do, whatever speaking to others you do, resources, gifts, opportunities, be accountable to God in all things that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Thank you for watching this video.